And it's 1976 and it's Olympic year and I'm still living at home with my parents. I have no car. I have to get up and run in the morning, catch a bus to the school, teach all day, catch a bus to the track and train. And I win the New Zealand championships or trials to go to Montreal in both the 800 and the 1500 meters. And once again, that's all there was. So I, I only ever thought I was an 800, 1500 meter runner. And so um, then I get told by the well, the school administration, the, you know, the superintendents, whatever, all the, those words, I get mixed up with American and New Zealand words now, that I had a choice to make. I could go to the Olympic Games, but I would lose my job if I did. That, my friend, was Anne Ordain. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope you're all well. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. Absolutely buzzing after today's episode, an interview with one of the best female track and road runners of all time, Anne Ordain. She was adopted as a child. She had her feet reconstructed at the age of 13. She qualified for the 1972 Olympics in Munich at the age of 16. She went on to qualify for six Olympics in total from 800 meters to marathon distance. She won gold in the 3000 meters. She broke the world record for the 5000 meters. She won silver in the Commonwealth Games. The list of achievements goes on and on and on. In the 80s, she won more races than any other male or female athlete. On top of that, she was the first professional distance runner which seen her receive a lifetime ban. An absolute lost story that needs to be told. So it's with great pleasure I give you an ordain. Well, it, it is interesting because um, I don't know how much you know about, but I was, a, I was adopted and I found my birth parents when I was 32 years old. And my, fa my father was full-blooded Dutch and had immigrated to New Zealand at the age of 18 after the Korean War. And he lived to be 90 years old. I found him when I was 32. He lived to be 90 years old. He never lost that accent. I mean, he never, he lived 70 years in New Zealand and he was so strong with his accent. My husband, when we went down there, he couldn't understand it. <laughs> so 70 years. So I've inherited that stubbornness, I guess, that I'm not going to lose mine either. How did you meet your husband? Um, I met my husband at a running camp in North Carolina uh, two, two years after I'd retired from the sport. And Nike had sent me there to um, be a speaker. And he was there as a camper, actually by mistake, because he, he, um, he'd been there the year before and uh, he'd gone to the adult camp. And this particular year, he'd messed up and, and he'd... Um, registered for the uh, camp that had all the high school runners. And so he was the only adult there and a bunch of high school runners. And, and uh, I couldn't figure out what this guy was doing there because he was never part of the staff or never attended any staff meetings. And, and then, and finally someone said, well, who are you and why are you here? And he says, well, I'm here by mistake. I thought I was <laughs> signing up for the adult uh, uh, camp, but, we just we had a great time and and uh we married and I lived in Idaho at that point so I couldn't have been further away and he was in Indiana and uh he had uh you know full-time job and a little seven-year-old daughter and I was more free to be the one that traveled and moved and and we got married in 97. 
the timing was right yes then, two years after retirement. yes yeah it was and, and t- t- time to grab a man <laughs> well i I'd, I'd i'd been married before so um to okay. a new zealander okay. but um but anyway um he jokingly says about how um that i liked him because he wasn't really impressed overly impressed he he, he didn't go for the celebrity side of things and that I kind of liked that. And that was kind of true. He just treated me normally versus any time I went to these places, you're treated as a celebrity. Well, he couldn't have cared less. And he, he just jokingly says, well, he really liked me because I didn't care who she was. <laughs> so obviously born New Zealand. I think everybody will gather that by now from your accent. <laughs> um, as you were saying that you were adopted as a child, but you had a real issue with your feet when you were younger. Talk me through that a little bit. Yeah, so I was adopted as a baby, and um, when I uh, was supposed to start to learn to walk, um, I didn't do it very well. So my parents just thought I was, you know, a bit backward in that kind of transition, and, uh, you know, they allowed me to take my time. But what was happening was I would not go up on the front part of my feet. I was shuffling along on my heels, and no one could really figure out why. And... You know, obviously, you you can't um, uh, talk, <laughs> so you can't really, you know, describe what's happening. And as I got um, older, they just noticed that I had learnt to walk on the back of my heels and very pigeon-toed. But I got along doing that. But what was actually happening was that it was causing me a lot of pain to do that. But as a kid, you just think that's you just think stuff's normal, right? And so finally. They took me to some doctors because what was happening as my feet grew, these huge bone protrusions were growing like very, very, very serious bunions. That's the only way I can describe it. These big bones were coming out the side of my big toes and uh, and getting bigger as I grew. So they took me to doctors and the doctor said, well, we've just never seen this before. And, and it's obviously inhibiting her getting up on the front part of her feet not to mention wearing normal shoes. But then they said, we're not going to do anything until she's a teenager and her bones are strong enough to manage the surgery and, you know, recover hopefully from the surgery. So fortunately growing up in New Zealand, um, you know, the climate where I grew up in Auckland City, um, you could go barefoot most of the time. Uh, so I would go to school barefoot or my dad had found these kind of strappy sandals where he'd cut the leather so that that protrusion could stick out the side. And then in the wintertime, I had kind of slippers, like I used to call them old lady slippers. They were soft and and uh, he'd cut a hole in the side so that there was pressure off that. It was just so painful. I, and, and it was hard to describe. It was just really, really painful. And it was like they were getting worse and worse and worse. And so finally, when I was 13 years old, just about to start high school, um, the doctors, it was the summer of 1969. And, you know, in New Zealand in January, the whole country closes down and goes to the beach. And I was due to just reminded me a bit like Brian Adams there. It was the summer of 69. That's a song I use a great deal. Uh, yes, sometimes people say to me, what's your favorite song? What song would uh, depict your life? And I, that's exactly the song I say is that the summer of 69. And I was so mad because I wanted to go to the beach. And it's like, no, you're going into hospital instead because I was about to start high school on February 1st. So 
they say to my parents, and this was the interesting thing, was because up until then, I had not been involved in any sport whatsoever. And so they came out to my parents when they're prepping for the surgery and they said, well, we've found something else. She's got a, a, a huge heart for a very tiny girl. And we don't know whether that's a problem or an asset, right? I mean, so... Like literally, physically. Physically, a, a large a heart for heart. a tiny girl because I was very thin. And, uh, and they said, we can't promise miracles, but we're going to do our best. And so they did the surgery and what they did was... They cut off all that excess bone and they transplanted my main tendon to my big toes so that I would be able to. And, and um, I mean, the, the most amazing thing was, you know, I woke up in the hospital bed and, I, you know, it's the old days of the plaster of Paris casts. Oh, and they're soaking wet. And what's happened is, is they have not stopped the bleeding. So when I wake up, I'm looking at pink plaster casts. Oh, as a 13-year-old 13, 13 kid. And so they go, oh, my gosh. So they have to take them off. So they take, now I'm awake. So they're now taking these, cutting these things off. And my both my feet have got stitches all the way down the, the inside of my feet and then in another portion. And I, and, I mean, my feet are just an absolute mess. And they're cutting these things off while I'm awake. Um, they had to do that twice because they could not stop the bleeding on my feet. And that's pretty traumatic as a 13-year-old as a kid. So anyway, I'm in the hospital for about a couple of weeks um, so that they're monitoring for infection and everything. And um, when it came time to leave the hospital, they said that they weren't going to give me crutches or a wheelchair, that they were going to design a black leather boot that would go on the bottom of those plaster casts and on the bottom of the black leather boot was a wooden rocker like a rocking horse and so what they wanted was that now you think about kind of in the United States doctors here taking that risk so anyway but in New Zealand you just didn't have all the you know lawsuits or whatever everything they were they were going to try something right but didn't work it didn't work but they were going to try something so what they wanted was that as my feet they didn't think that when the cast came off and I started to walk again they thought I would go back to my old habits immediately so what they wanted was that my as my feet healed they wanted to push me forward by using the rocker and so I walked out of those out of that hospital on that wooden rocker with those feet that still had the stitches in them and was still healing so you talk about pain I mean you know I cursed and I mean I was it, it was it was agony and it was three months of agony. And then when the cast came off, well, I had to take the cast off again to get the stitches out. And then they put them back on again and they stayed on for a couple of months again. And uh, when they came off, I looked down and apart from the scars, I had perfectly formed feet. And when I started the rehab and everything, I found it easier to run than it was to walk. And I think those doctors gave me that running style that I had you know, if you've watched any video, how powerful I am up on the front of my feet. I mean, they gave me that power and I'm so upright and on the, on the, I never heal. When you saw the wear and tear on my shoes, the back part of my shoes are never worn at all. The front part are bald. I have that saying, you must be off your rocker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Going around my yeah, head. Yeah, I know. 
it might have been created there but that's pretty that's very unique though isn't it there's quite a few times you'll hear stories of adversity and things coming out of that um that are very specific to that individual um that is very unique and when you look back and you've had plenty of time to reflect over the years obviously you know that change in style has given you made you so strong and so light off the front of your feet yes you're such a quick turnover and you're running it was and and i think it you know and and coming through from new zealand i mean you you have to have a lot of power to have that coming off the front of your feet like that um and i think both my coaches realized and and so the hill running hill repeats um was so so important to me to keep that posture um that i had to have to run like that um and to this day you know at age almost 65 I still go out twice a week to do some hill repeats because I think they're the best thing to keep my feet strong and healthy for the rest of my life. Yeah, but at 13, though, like that was, as you say, it was a pretty dramatic sort of thing to go through. But you came out of that, you took off the casts, and miraculously, because it could have went either way, really, yeah. couldn't it? Yeah. You had two amazing feet sitting in front of you, which you never had your entire life. I'm sure it was difficult before that, you know, going through school. Um, kids can be pretty cruel at times. Do you know what I mean? To cut the size of your shoes and go in with leather shoes, mm-hmm. splits in them. Yeah. It, I'm sure you had your fair share of people sort of teasing you and things yeah, like I that. Yeah, I did. I, I very much did. And, and um, I mean, I still have a scar on one eye to prove it where um, I did get teased. I was about eight years old and these girls, we had concrete water fountains outside in the playground and you would sit on these seats to um, eat your lunch each day. And they thought it was funny to kind of keep shoving along and shoving along until I was the last one. And I hit my eye on the concrete water fountain and almost lost my eye in that respect. Um, And then just being teased with the way I walked. Um, But my parents were, you know, what was amazing, I think, um, with my parents is that in the beginning, you know, I'd come home crying and, and my dad would just, well, my mom actually was the one with the saying, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And my dad was just, you just focus on your schoolwork. You can be top of the class. You can be the best in the class. And I was, which of course, you know, made you the nerd of the class as well. So it it didn't really work positively there. Um, but I, for some reason, I was very secure in myself and I, I, I've always been fiercely independent. And I wonder is first building blocks of life. I think, you know, being adopted and, and having a father that tells you as soon as you can understand that you're really special because he got to choose his daughter. Just the language of, of, of feeling secure that, yes, you're adopted, but there's no um, stigma in that, particularly back in the 50s. I mean, um, that, that he made me, my dad was so important, I think, in terms of telling me that, first of all, I could do anything. Secondly, teaching me about sport, even when I couldn't play it. Um, he took me to cricket matches and rugby matches because um, women didn't have very much then he was all into race horses so I learned about race horses and how they were trained um he gave me an education in sport we'd listen to Muhammad Ali boxing matches on the radio we'd listen to the Kentucky Derby 
Um, we'd watch English soccer when we finally got a television. So in other words, he was giving me all the education about sport when I couldn't even participate. But once I did get to participate, the knowledge was all there. Um, but through all that, I think he just told me that a girl could do anything and, you know, we'll focus on your education first of all, but, but there's no handicap here. You'll be just fine. Yeah. So like, that's pretty awesome. Like coming out of your casting, then your feet are like that. They look amazing. And from all of that conditioning that you had through your childhood, really, um, you then had a bit of self, a good bit of self-belief and you joined the local running club. Yeah. Like that's pretty, <laughs> it's the last thing you would think of I know. after what you went through. I know, but, um, but it was, it was really just about being like everybody else. And in New Zealand at that era, track and field, the running clubs were huge. I mean, they were just, I mean, track and field, you know, at that point we were coming out of the Peter Snell and Murray Helberg era, and and we were heading into just ahead of me were Don Walker, Dick Quax, and Rod Dixon, who were young stars. Um, we hadn't really had the female stars up until that point, but it was huge, and the and the track and field clubs were very very community oriented, very family oriented, and so my neighbours, the kids, and 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 the kids in the school all belonged to this local athletic club. So I just wanted to be like everybody else and, and join a club. And, and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Um, it was really just that all the kids around me belonged to this running club, athletic club. And how did it go when you first arrived then? Like, did you have any sort of signs of talent? No. Um, the, the, the way those clubs were set up was they were open to anybody from the age of five to 95. So when you went to club night, which was a Wednesday night, you went there at about five o'clock and all the families turned up and they had their, you know, evening picnic meals with them. And it would start off with the younger ones and they'd all run, jump and leap and throw. And then the next age groups would all participate. And then at the end, the adults, the parents would all get out there and do it. And you were encouraged to try everything from the sprints to the shot put to the discus and high jump and everything. Well, I wasn't interested in long jump or high jump because there was no way I was going to jump on those feet. So um, and then I had to make sure I threw the shot put far enough that it didn't hit the feet. But in the, we were only allowed to <laughs> run um, 100 meters and 200 meters. That was as long as girls of that age were allowed to run them. So that's all I did for a while until um, Gordon Perry, who was a um, famous British athlete in the 50s, uh, he had immigrated to New Zealand and he was the coach at this club. And he was coaching a whole bunch of athletes, maybe about 30 different age groups. And he just asked my parents if he could coach me too. And it was very soon. Okay, so I joined when I was 14. And I think the first race I ran was a cross-country race of about a mile for sub-junior girls. And I won it. And I ran barefooted because I was still struggling with running with shoes. Fortunately, the local track club was grass and the cross-country was just run over farmland. So I ran barefooted and I actually won. And that's when he said, gosh, you know, you, you, I th the first headline in a New Zealand newspaper that I had 
I was 14 years old and Gordon Purry, the headline says, Purry, uh, okay, girl athlete could turn out to be great. That's how quick it was. And, and uh, who, who knew, right? I'm 14 years old, but that's what he said. I've got that headline, girl runner could turn out to be great. And I was 14 years old. So the rules in New Zealand were that um, I had, there was no, no rules that stopped me from running against adults. So instead of wasting my time, which sounds ter terrible, arrogant, I guess, um, he encouraged me to go and run against senior women. And that's what I started to do. So at age 15, at age 16, I'm running in senior national championships on the track at 800 and 1500 meters. And then 1972 come up. So how many years was that? Four years? Two. Just under four two. years. Because I joined the, I joined at 14 and I was 16 when 72 came along. And so you qualified for the Munich Olympics. I did. And that would have been the first Olympic Games that had the 1500 meters for women. Um, New Zealand had never sent a, a, a runner, a female runner. They'd sent a track and field women, um, but they hadn't sent a female runner to the Olympic Games. And I did the qualifying time in the 1500 meters and they chose me to go but with three weeks to go they said no and a lot of that was to do with first of all was it being female I think it had more to do with my age to be honest 16 years of age and New Zealand didn't have um they didn't have the money to field a big team so they wanted to make sure that an older athlete in some other sport got the chance to go it was understandable and then when you look at what happened at Munich with the um terrorists and the Israeli athletes and, and the New Zealand team was housed on the same floor as the Israeli athletes. And so they, there were a lot of photographs taken by New Zealand athletes who witnessed a lot. And as a 16 year old, that wouldn't have been um, too no. good to, ex too no. good to experience. It was a good twist of fate. Um, our very own Mary Peters was at the Munich. We had her on the podcast. She actually won gold. Yeah. I remember. She'd become a national to become a national treasure because of that um but that is phenomenal like isn't it like 13 years of age you know your feet pigeon foot was a good way to describe it actually <laughs> <laughs> actually um you know you could barely walk properly let alone run on your feet going through that operation you know a couple of years later and then getting the qualifying time for the olympics at 16 years of age yeah. you know that was just absolutely when i read that um, I thought, wow, what a great story. Like, what a great journey that you were going through at that stage. Mm -hmm. But you qualified for six Olympics altogether in your career. Yeah, yeah, from every distance from 800 meters to the marathon. Yeah, which is that, even that, you know, the range. The range, yeah. Um, I'm surprised they weren't making up events just for Anne. <laughs> <laughs> so talk me through some of your, your high points and your low points in the Olympic stage. Well, so... So at age 17, um, I went in my first New Zealand uh, team, and that was to the World Cross Country. So the first place I touched down was actually London, England, and the men's team was able to run in the um, English Championships, um, which was just amazing to see cross country in England and how big it was. And so the World Championships were in Belgium. And as I said, I was only 17, and they didn't have junior championships then, so I'm running against seniors. And I finished ninth. 
in the World Cross Country at age 17. So I actually got to succeed at cross country sooner than track. Um, yeah, because that was really, really competitive. Yes. You know, cross country back then, that's where it really came from. You know, extremely, we can't underestimate how competitive that was. So to come ninth in the world, yeah, it, it, you know, that really put you on the radar. It did. And um, so at uh, 74, I was in the British Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, New Zealand in the 1500 meters, and I finished sixth at 18 years of age. Um, at 19, I went to the World Cross Country again and finished ninth for a second time. Uh, I think that was Germany. Germany. I think they all run together now. Um, who, who, was, who were some of the big names that were about them? Okay, so, all right, I'll backtrack to 75 World Cross Country. The New Zealand men's team, that was Rabat, Morocco, the New Zealand men's team won the World Championship and the New Zealand women's team was second. And in that in that team, I think were the greatest runners, greatest team of runners ever to be assembled. But it was before we all became world famous. And you think about the name. It was John Walker. Now this is 75. Before he became the first man to break 350 in the mile, before he won the 76 gold medal, you had Rod Dixon. Bronze in Munich in the 1500 meters, but later went on to win New York Marathon. Dick Quacks, silver medal in 76 behind Viren in Montreal in the 5000 meters, world record in the 5000 meters. Now, this is 70, this is before any of us ever did this. Lorraine Mahler, winner of Boston, um, winner of many, many marathons, um, bronze in Barcelona. Alison Rowe went on to uh, win Boston and New York in the same year. We're all in that team together in 75 as 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. Wow. Sounds like a movie. It, I oh. know. It is. It is. Could you believe how frustrated we are, all of us, that, that that era has not been put into New Zealand sports history? I really don't get it. it I mean, you know, I've got my book. Lorraine's got a book. I've got my movie. Um, the frustration of that era of, of the, those, first of all, the three women and the three men, even though there were other great folks in that team, um, a male and female size side, you just take six of us and where we ended up, who was to know that that team that went to Morocco, and boy, was that a journey. I mean, we had no money. The team management had no money. I mean, you talk about a team that had to bond and make do with what we had and were often not eating what we should be eating because they had no money to feed us. And we bonded and you look at who those athletes ended up being on the world stage. It, Why do you think that is? You're bound to have sort of reflected on that and have some sort of theories. Is it just all politics or? Oh, why we're not... Um... Yeah, why it hasn't been sort of... I don't think our sport anywhere does a great deal with our history. Mm. Here in the United States, I'm in two United States running Hall of Fames and they don't even have a building. So there's nowhere for any of us to put our memorabilia. In New Zealand, there is the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame and you have to be really, really good to get into that. And all six of us are. 
And so you're able to send some of your memorabilia to that building, which is actually spectacular. But even now, because I, I'm being interviewed now because next year is the 40th anniversary of when we turned pro, and no one's documented that. And I, I mean, here in the United States, I go, I can't believe that that this story is not is not on ESPN. Or that, why doesn't our sport promote its history? I don't get it. I, I really don't. And so they don't do it in New Zealand. It's all rugby, cricket, you know, um, all of it. Do you think it's changed? Do you think it's changing now that it's more of a timing thing? Um, more and more people are starting. Well, there's such an explosion on track and field and running in general. And like there's so much happening, but we are starting to move back. It's like us having this interview now. Yes. And it's starting to happen. It's whether it happens quick enough because there's so much inspiration there, especially for people that are back in New Zealand. Well, and you see, I, I got that documentary made, if you've watched it, Running Her Way. Okay, so that just took, finding a young couple who just wanted to try something out in life and finding enough money to pay them to do it. But I had so much memorabilia to be able to give them everything. I had my scrapbooks, my videos. So that, you know, that's how that got made. Um, then uh, the shorter version that was just done recently by a group in New Zealand, the one that's just 14 minutes, they saw the big version and said, you know what they called me up here? And they said, we're doing a series on the lost sporting legends of New Zealand. So that's how that short of version got done because I was a lost legend. So that one got out there. So then another guy. Uh, uh, but you're a lost, you're a lost living lost, legend. Yeah, thank goodness I'm not dead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then um, a film producer from Hollywood who happens to be a New Zealander um, has had some success in Hollywood, quite, quite good success, really. Um, he called me, contacted me, and he had those two films managed to get me some interviews on radio in New Zealand where they started talking about my history and everything and saying, you know, gosh, do people know that? He listened to it in California. He was still in tune with New Zealand when he was listening to New Zealand sports radio. And he heard it and he said, I remember watching you win the gold medal. He was young, but he said, I had no idea. So then he says, well, I'm going to pitch the story. Well, I sent him all the books and he was writing the script and everything. Well, now it's just all messed up because of the virus and everything. I mean, nobody's going anywhere. He can't travel to New Zealand. I mean, it's it's just all on on hold until things get sorted out. But he said... He was going to go to the Film Institute of New Zealand and try and raise the money to get a, a bigger yeah. film made. Um, so, so it's a it's a fantastic story. So, talk to us a little bit about your success then. So, the I know it's a huge <laughs> it's a huge story. Um, so, okay, so seventy. You were following the right path there through the yeah, so, yeah, going there. through. It. So, seventy six. I'm a twenty year old new elementary school teacher. And I'm teaching in a very, very poverty, pov um, poor area of Auckland, New Zealand, um, to a lot of Polynesian and Maori children. And it's 1976 and it's the Olympic year and I'm still living at home with my parents. I have no car. I have to get up and run in the morning, catch a bus to the school, teach all day, catch a bus to the track and train. 
and I win the New Zealand Championships or trials to go to Montreal in both the 800 and the 1500 meters. And once again, that's all there was. So I, I only ever thought I was an 800, 1500 meter runner. And so um, then I get told by the, well, the school administration, the, you know, the superintendents, whatever, all the, those words, I get mixed up with American and New Zealand words now, that I had a choice to make. I could go to the Olympic Games, but I would lose my job if I did. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to the Olympic Games because I can teach for the rest of my life. I mean, what a stupid choice. So um, I actually went to Europe with Walker, Quacks and Dixon to run some track uh, races before heading to Montreal. And um, that's uh, I watched Dick Quacks attempt the world 5,000-meter record I believe it was that year, and he missed it by one second. And I remember because my my coach, who my next coach, John Davies, was coaching Dick at the time, and I remember him just being so mad because Dick put his hands up too soon before the line and lost the momentum and missed the world record by one second. Now, can, we can go back to that, but just remember that point because I had a huge part to play when I broke the world record. So... So anyway, so we go to Montreal. Well, the whole country, I'm getting so much publicity as a young girl, the, their first female track, you know, heroine and whatever, and all these little kids are sending me postcards and wishing me luck and I'm getting telegrams. And I don't even get past the first round of Montreal. In fact, in the 800 meters, I was last in my heat. In the 1500 meters, I ran a new New Zealand record but only finished eighth and never got past the first rounds. So you're 20 years old and you're a school teacher. You've gone to the Olympic Games and it hasn't gone too well, thinking, well, Quack's got a silver, Walker got a gold. We had a rowing team that won gold. It's a very, very small New Zealand team, and I didn't even get past the first rounds. And so you come back and you just go, well, what the heck am I bothering for? right? I got to carry on. I got to have a teaching career, make money, whatever. So, but a lot of people encouraged me to keep going by the fact I was so young. And who was the most, who was the biggest inspiration at that point? Not, not any. Who was the most pivotal? Not any. No, just, just, just my parents saying, well, you're just so young and Gordon per saying you're just young and you can't quit. And, and you've, you know, you have had these results in cross country so you've obviously got talent. It wasn't really computing at that point that track and field, all I had was the 800 and 1500 meters, whereas when I was getting into cross country, it was now two miles. And it wasn't computing that I was better at those lo the so-called longer distance of two miles. But, you know, so anyway, so I went again 70. You're only getting warmed up, Anne, that's fine. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so what happened? Um, 79, I went to another world cross country, finished ninth again. Um, and then 1980 came around and I was um, having a lot of trouble with my first marriage. Um, Gordon Perry was just getting really out of control. And that's just another whole story that I had to overcome. Uh, he was very abusive, very possessive, um, very, very, um, confrontational, to other athletes that I was competing against, to other coaches, um, just all round had become a really nasty, bitter man. 
And so for all those reasons, um, and qualifying for Moscow and then having the boycott happen, I quit the sport completely. Quit running completely because I just saw no, I saw no future now, right? I, I didn't want to be coached by Gordon Perry. I saw no future. Um, I had to just get on with my life. And stopped enjoying it. I did. Yeah, I really did. I had a terrible experience in Norway with my um, with Gordon, um, and to the point where I got a plane on a plane home from Amsterdam in um, uh, it was eighty. Yeah, it was an eighty. Because um, after the boycott, uh, I actually went to Europe with him because they were going to hold an inaugural women's three thousand meter world championship. And I ran the qualifying time to go and do that. So that's how I ended up in... in. But he was training you very hard back then, wasn't he? Like extremely hard to get every ounce. Yeah, he was. it was all very, very hard and there was never any plan to it. It all came down to how, uh, what kind of day he was having in life. And some days he'd make us run really, really hard three days in a row. So that was breaking me down as well. More mentally, I seemed to manage it physically, but it was breaking me down mentally. So when I got on that plane in, in, in Holland, in Amsterdam, I just said goodbye to him and I never spoke to him again. And that's when I came back and just quit, just absolutely quit everything. And oops, hold on. So then um, uh, so, so I was recommended that I should, you know, I really shouldn't quit, that I should try a new coach. And that's when I was recommended to go and join or ask John Davies to coach me. And he'd watched me all these years. He'd coached at Quacks. He'd coached Lorraine Moller, who I had competed against in all these races. So he knew, certainly knew about me. He'd watched me run. He'd watched me train because he lived in the same place. And uh, but he also knew all the baggage I was coming with. And and it was not. It was it was my ex-husband. It was my ex-coach. And because my ex-husband was quite a character too, and in, in terms of being very confrontational with people as well. So I had both that baggage. And uh, so he declined at first. It took, a, it took a while. I think it took about a month for him to say yes. And when I went out for my first run with him and he said, you know, I've watched you trained all these years. And he said, I just don't agree with anything, how you were trained. So he said, I'm going to turn everything upside down. And you're going to start again from scratch. And I put on quite a bit of weight. And up until then, I'd only ever run an hour. That's the longest Gordon ever got me to run. And uh, so John says, well, you're going to learn how to run an hour and a half. And he took me to this forest north of Auckland. And we parked the car by these gates. And then you get out in all these forest trails. And he just had this big circle. And he made me run. And he wouldn't let me stop. And we're coming up the last hill and I'm just dead. And he's actually behind me with his hand on my back, pushing me up the hill because he did not want me to stop. He wanted to prove to me that I could run an hour and a half without stopping. And, you know, it, it, he, first of all, personality-wise, he was a complete opposite um, to my ex-husband and my ex-coach. So there was that part of it as well. He was, he was more of a leader. He was just a nice man to be honest. And I just needed that nice disposition. Um, he was just a good quality, just a good person. And so I, so he was really, he was really key at that moment in time. He, he was, was, yeah. I got, it was real, uh, 
you were at a T junction. I could have went any direction. Oh yes. Oh yeah. He was just the right person at the right. I couldn't time. attend his. You know, he sadly passed way too young, and I couldn't get back for his funeral. And that's what I got someone to read that I would not be who I was if John Davies had not said yes. Mm. It's as simple as that. I mean, I had all the talent, obviously, but um, I was certainly in. Yeah, I, I. If he'd not said yes, we wouldn't be chatting, and I wouldn't have all those achievements. I mean, it was. Uh, it was amazing. And I, I joined him at the end of 1980. I didn't really stop for very long. Um, but we he started training me and there was a world cross-country team going to have the trials in February of 1981 to go to, um, where do we go? Madrid, Spain. And he says, I think you can make that team. And I oh, for heaven's sake, John, you know, I'm starting from scratch. There's no way. He goes, yeah, sure, you can. I think you can. He says, I know you're out of shape. I know you're overweight, but I think, you know, we can do this. And I made that team in sixth place by one second. And I remember the girls that were finished behind me were just absolutely in tears because they couldn't believe that I'd managed to pull it off because I was out of shape. I was overweight. I did not look like anything I'd used to. And they were devastated because, you know, how dare they pick her? Well, I had the history, so they were going to get the selectors. I could have been left out because I certainly, but they knew that, you know, I now had another whole month to prepare. And so anyway, we went to Madrid, Spain, and um, while we were there, um, Rod Dixon was in the team again, and he, he started telling me about, he'd already been to the United States. Him and Dick Quacks and Lorraine Moller had already come to the United States and started running a few of the longer distances. And Dick Quacks was here in the United States um, working for Nike as a very new company, right? A very young company just in Oregon. And so Rod said to me, he says, "I, I think you should go to the States because he said, you know, we've run with you all these years. He says, those distances are made for you. you. You should go there. They're, they're allowing women to run the five and 10 Ks on the road. He goes, you're set for that. So when you're in a New Zealand team, you get a round-the-world ticket. You don't have to come back with the team. You can stay away if you want to. And so I just changed it to go to the United States. And um, John Davies, who had coached at Quacks, and, of course, they're in really good touch, you know, Don says, well, Anne's coming to the States. What, what can you do to help her? And Dick says, well, I'll help, you know, whatever I can. I'll try and get her into some races. So he got me into a 10K race in uh, New Orleans, of all places, um, the Crescent City Classic. And so I land in New Orleans, and you just think, you know, a young girl, I'm now 25 years old, coming out of New Zealand. And, yes, I've traveled through Europe, but have you, have you ever been to New Orleans? Yeah. So you imagine touching down in New Orleans and, and, and you – and you're being picked up in a limousine and you're taken to a really ha- fancy hotel and you're just in this beautiful suite and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is America? I mean, because all my experience had been was going through Los Angeles Airport on the way to Europe. So I was like, oh, heavens. And so they really nice guys, the race directors, and they, um, they say, well, we need you to unpack and we need you down at the press conference in a couple of hours. So I go down to this press conference, big room, table up the front with all these chairs, 
And I just sit down in the audience thinking, okay, that's fine. And they come and they go, oh, no, we need you up on the podium with the elite athletes. I, oh, Lord, who do they, who do they think I am, right? Maybe it's just because it's a New Zealander, right? Maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's just that. Um, up there are Bill Rogers, who's, you know, Boston Marathon, um, Joan Benoit Samuelson, who went on to be the first, win the first Olympic women's marathon, um, Jackie Garreau, who just won Boston. She was from Canada. Margaret Gross, who went on to win the marathon trials in 88. Um, uh, Jeff Galloway, who was an Olympian. For, uh, I mean, I'm up there, right? And so Patty Catalano, who was an American record holder at 10K. So I put myself way down the ends. And so they started at the other end and they had a moderator and they're coming down and they're saying, um, what do you think you're going to do tomorrow? What do you think? And Patty's saying, well, I'm going to break the American record. And Joan, who's more humble, says, well, I'm just, I think I'm in really good shape. And and it comes down and 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 what what do you think you oh that's right the, the question was well you've run a really fast 10k what do you think you're going to do tomorrow I had never run a 10k in my life in a race <laughs> so I'm thinking at this point I was quick enough to think Dick Dick has told them I've run a 10k to get me into this race so I was quick enough to say yeah and I think tomorrow. I can run my best time, which was not lying because I'm going to run my first 10K, so it is going to be my best time. Well, the next day I, I line up, and I've never started with 8,000 people behind me at all. I had no idea what running in a crowd like that was like. Closest thing was starting off in a cross-country race, but 8,000 people, and they're all pushing from behind, and I tripped and fell. And I'm, oh, Lord, it's like, this is my first American race and I had grazed knees and, but somebody picked me up out of the bunch of people on the ground and I just started running and I could see my competitors out and the, you know, it's like, well, it's do or die. It's no use pulling out, you know, just keep on going. Well, I ended up finishing third and I ran 33 minutes and 13 seconds, which happened to be one minute faster <laughs> than the so-called time that, that uh, uh, Dick had told them. So now they're impressed because I've just improved by a minute. <laughs> Got a minute PB before you ran a 10K. So whatever. So, um, but what was so, so amazing was that Jeff Galloway and his wife, uh, people were somehow realizing, I had no idea, right? But these people were realizing that I had talent very quickly. I, I'm just running. And so he said, well, Barbara and I are catching a train back to our home in Atlanta. If you want to ride the train with us, you can come and stay for a couple of weeks and we'll tell you about what everything's happening here in the United States. Well, how cool is that? I had nowhere to go. I didn't know where I was going next. And so I go to stay with them for two weeks. Then um, Dick Quack says, well, come to Eugene, Oregon. I can find you a place to stay and, and we can get you into some races on the West Coast. So I go over to Eugene, Oregon. He gets me into some races on the West Coast. I win my first biggest United States road race, um, the big Bloomsday race in, in, in Spokane, Washington, which was a 12K. I go in there and nobody knows me whatsoever. And I win and I win by two minutes. And people are going, who is this gal? You know, 
And and so I then um, uh, Nike Dick starts to get me some stuff, you know, some shoes to run in, and um, then. Jeff Galloway puts me in touch with a guy called Creek Kelly in Denver, Colorado, and he's starting to just manage a few athletes, you know, get them a little bit of money by get, allowing them to speak in running stores to, to help. You know, it just was all this new sport that was building, but it was still amateur. It was still amateur. So the only way was we would get paid to, to under the table still to go and speak in some running or to hold a few clinics. So it comes to June of 1981 and Nike and Phil Knight, who's one of the founders of Nike, he's going to put up $50,000 prize money for a 15K road race in Portland, Oregon and encourage all the athletes to turn up with the understanding but if you win and accept that prize money, the penalty is a lifetime ban from the sport. Up until then, nobody in track and field or cross country could accept any money for anything in the sport. You really couldn't even be getting the free shoes. Yeah, because it's it was they deemed it to be against the spirit of running back then. Didn't yeah, they? yeah, we're supposed to be all doing it and trying to feed ourselves at the same time. I mean. So I'm like, I had traveled in Europe and watched my male compatriots get all the under the table payments. I knew they told me how much money they were making. I knew mm. it's like good for them. But if I get a chance to do this and it's going to be legal, I'm all in. So I went to Portland, Oregon and the night before they had us all in a room and there was a lot of nervousness. Because you had Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers. Alison Rowe had just won Boston. Um, from, and so Greta Weitz. I mean, there was a lot of nervousness because those folks were getting money under the table. So now they were going to say, okay, we're going to let a whole bunch of other folks in. Now it's going to be a free-for-all when we've been getting paid the appearance fees. When we've been getting the money. So now it's going to come down to prize money. We might have to perform for it. You know, so a lot of stuff going on. I just sat in a corner and we were all handed a document to say, did we understand the consequences? And if we signed the document and we accepted prize money the next day, did we understand what was going to happen? Well, I'm thinking, well, sixth, fifth and sixth place is going to earn me about $1,600. It'll allow me to stay in the United States a little bit longer. Um, but I got out on that course the next day and the Portland, the Cascade runoff is 15K five miles up and four miles down and boy that running style and all those hills in New Zealand is I got up to the top of that hill and there was no one I could see and I thought I'm going to run down this hill as hard as I can so no one can catch me and they didn't um, I think I won by about almost 50 seconds and uh, and I won ten thousand dollars <laughs> that's unbelievable ten thousand dollars in 1981 and so, you know, three times what I was earning as a school teacher in New Zealand, way more than that because it was American dollars. So, you know, you take it back to New Zealand, it's twice as much. Um, and so, but immediately crossing that finish line, um, as soon as I accepted that check, 
there were telegrams immediately from the New Zealand Athletic Federation banning me. That's where it had to come from first. Um, the international ban came later. But with the American athletes, they didn't get that ban immediately because of their constitution. They had their rights to fight it. So they could fight the ban. I couldn't. I got banned by another country that didn't have the same system. I was also in trouble with immigration because I was only in the United States on a visitor's visa and it's illegal to earn money. So that I had to find an immigration lawyer very quickly. Um, you know, then you're dealing with taxes and the system and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so I'm 25 years old in a so-called foreign country. You know, my parents were just beside themselves. And it's like, you have really messed up your life. You're in so much trouble. But the beauty of it was, was first of all, Phil Knight had the resources to hire all the lawyers he needed. As long as he had me to take the stand, right? Because I was, the, fir I was mm. the first foreigner, right? The Americans could all fight in another way, but he had me to, to put the name on the process. So, um, and then all the... Because he, he, was, he was trying to create something yes, there, wasn't he? Yes, of course. Yes, he wanted, he no, wanted he Nike was... to be great. And he wanted Nike to sponsor athletes. And he wanted Nike to be the best. And he wanted the athlete... Having you yeah. on side yeah. and winning that is helping him to break through yes. to a global market. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but, then, but the beauty was that the American road race directors wanted this to happen. They didn't like the under the, payment, under the table payments. Mm. They wanted it to happen. So they ignored my ban for the rest of the year. And they welcomed me to every single race. But the next race I ran, which was July 4th, so the Cascade runoff was June 28th. Um, I left Portland and went to Atlanta, Georgia, where Peachtree is, which is now the largest race in the world, 60,000 athletes in a 10K. Um, so I went to Peachtree, and three days later, um, I signed or I wrote out a, my first so-called Nike contract on a table napkin at an ice cream parlor in downtown Atlanta. And it was for $400 a month and free clothing and shoes. So that's why, oops, oh, sorry. That's why I feel I can claim that I was the first female runner to join Nike because it was three days after taking that stand. There was no one else that did it. There was no one else. There was so, no one else in those so the first, three days. So bigger than that, it's really the first professional female runner. Yes. Because running was an amateur yeah. sport back then. You know, nobody was getting paid. Yeah. It was all under the table. Yes. Um, to be official, the official napkin. Yeah. You don't have that napkin, do you, by any no, chance? No, I mean, but I've got the two. It's so disappointing. I got the two people that I was with. I still still around <laughs> to back it up, um, but. Uh, you know, into this, I can picture all three of us can picture it, and we laugh about it. It's like we had no idea that history. We had no idea history was being made. So I raced the rest of 1980. It's not just a. It's not just a part of your history. That's a part of Nike's history. It is, and that's why I can't believe Nike doesn't support the film being made. Mm. Um, so I ran. I raced the, the rest of the year. Went completely unbeaten. Um, and then it got to around October and immigration said, you've got to go back to New Zealand. 
and you can't come back here until you figure out what your status is and you have to do it in New Zealand. You can't do it here. Well, that was fine because, you know, I wasn't going to live in an American winter. Um, I was in Colorado, so I wouldn't have known what to do with snow. So I was going back to New Zealand anyway. So that wasn't any hardship. Um, but I get back to New Zealand and the New Zealand Federation is saying, you can't run here. You know, we don't even want you anywhere near a track. I wasn't an even welcome to watch the track meets that they had down there. And in that era, they had a lot of international track meets where a lot of European athletes would come down to avoid the European winter and come down to compete in the New Zealand summer and train in the New Zealand summer. And I was not wanted. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so John Davies says, well, Annie, you've got to have a reason to keep training hard while you're here. We don't know when your status immigration-wise is going to allow you back in the United States. We can't waste this time. I think you should attempt the world record in the 5,000 meters. I was like, John, you've gone nuts. You know, he's like, seriously? Here? I said, they're not even going to allow me on a track. He says, it'll be legal if we can find two other women to line up with you and have three official timekeepers. It'll be legal. But there won't be a meet and there won't be a crowd, but we can take a shot at it. Well, Greta Weitz had come down to New Zealand at that point, and she had attempted the world 5,000-meter record, and I was sat in the stands and watched her miss it by about 10 seconds. Well, Greta's Greta, right? World cross country, multiple world cross country. I mean, Greta is it. Greta is the world star. I look at John, I go, Greta can't even break this record, and you think I can? Yes, think you can. So, all right, so on March 17th of 1982, I lined up with about 200 people on the side of the track. Um, fortunately, a television station, um, three timers and two other, well, my three other athletes, or was it just two? Lorraine Moller was one of them. Um, and so I lined up and um, I got to the last lap and I was down on the world record by five seconds. And all, going back to Dick Quacks, attempting that world record the first time before he eventually got it the second time, was a missing it. That's all I could think of that last lap is don't miss it. Don't miss it, you know. So I got it by one second. Um, first time I'd ever raced the distance on the track. And what was that like then? What was that feeling like crossing that line and looking over at the clock? How many seconds did you be? Only one, like one, one yeah, second. one second, you know, but, but it's, it's, I, I guess, um, like that was the fastest 5,000 meters have been run on the track ever. That's what the world record. Means. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I know. And, and it was a new, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, I think there'd only been two other women that had run it, but you still think 1981, 15 minutes and 13 seconds. Not that shabby. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of, I tell that, I speak in high schools or college and they go, seriously, you ran, in 1981, you ran 15 minutes and 13 seconds. Um, but anyway, so that was, that was proof to me that John knew what he was doing. I mean, he, if he hadn't told me to do that, I wouldn't have done it. 
I would never have entered my mind that I could try. So where, where do you go after that? So you had the Commonwealth Games then coming up. Well, I got to go back to the States um, in March of 81. And that year, 82, beg your pardon. March of 82, I went back to the States with the right visa and literally went on a rampage. I won every single road race I entered that year. I broke every course record, won every United States major road race often by huge amounts of time where people were just starting to say, this woman is the best road racer the world's ever seen. Um, of course, the sport's all new, so that sounds really nice. Um, but, John, I did. I, when you look at that year, which I have a photograph of that list of that year, and it gets to about um, July, and John starts seeing about, well, you need to run in the Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, Australia in October. I go, no, I don't want to. I just want to keep running the roads. I don't want to run track anymore. New Zealand Federation hasn't treated me well. I don't want to do it. And he just kept pestering me. Do it for your country. Do it for your parents. Whatever. And I said... Because they, the, they, they turned their back on you, like... Yes, they did. They, it, was, it was almost... And they, it was almost a, and they couldn't ignore you well, because your results were so good. That's true. And it was almost a petty jealousy by those guys it was all run by guys you know and and so it was almost petty to be honest I didn't care I mean it was just petty it was silly um and I had John back down there to to really support me now I'm still banned and I finally say yes I'll do it John but I'm still banned so is this all going to work out in time for me to I'm going to travel all the way to Australia and I still don't know he says Annie I promise I'm hearing stuff I think they're going to lift the ban so that you can run in the Commonwealth Games. And I said, okay, the second thing is, I want to continue running these road races. So if you can still fit them in to a track 3000 meter program, I'll do it. But I've committed to these road races and I'm not gonna quit now, this is my future. So we did, and you see the training plan and you know, in my office here, I have his handwritten plan for the three months of how I'm going to do it. And the top of that, on that page, it says, this is a gold medal schedule and on the day of the race, it says win gold medal. And on the day of the after the race, it says polish gold medal. And I have it right here. And I can send you all this stuff if you ever have a page you want to put it up on. I can send it all to you. So, so no pressure there. But There's not too many training plans like that. Pardon? There's not too many training plans like that. No, no. I, I mean, that's where he was a genius. I think he knew. I think there's... Times in life where a coach and athlete just really nail it. And I think we did. He knew that he could say that to me and I would not be scared. And then he knew he had the training program to get me there. It was that kind of partnership that I was not scared to take it on. I wasn't scared of failure. I wasn't scared to take it on. I wasn't scared to say, yes, I'm shooting for a gold medal. So... I fly all the way to Australia and I'm still banned and I run in a few warm-up meets that they allow me to run because they weren't sanctioned track meets. They were just kind of some warm-up ones. And uh, then I get the ban lifted um, one week before I'm supposed to race and I get finally presented with my world record plaque because they weren't going to allow me to have the world record either as a banned athlete. So I got that handed to me. It was almost like that was a huge setup, you know, to make them all look so wonderful. It's the Commonwealth Games. We've given her her plaque. We're going to allow her to run. 
Um, so I get out, and I'm only ranked ninth in the Commonwealth in the 3,000 meters. The Commonwealth record holder and European record holder is Wendy Smith of Great Britain, now Wendy Sly. And so there's Canadians that are really fast. As I said, I've only got the ninth ranked time. And I had now really become a front runner. That's the only way I ever wanted to run. And the reason being is because of my feet. Because if I led, I ran smoothly. If I was in a crowd, I had to stop start. And my feet hated that. Couldn't handle it. I had to run smoothly. So that's why I became a front runner. That's why I was out in front all the time. Um, but John comes out to the warm-up track and he's going to be commentating for New Zealand television and live back to New Zealand. And he says, Annie, he says, it's really, really windy in the stadium. You've got to promise me uh, you can't lead today, Annie. You can't lead today. You've got to promise me that. Uh, you've got a really good finish. Um, just wait for that. You're really strong. You're really fast. Just wait for that. And I say, okay, I promise. And I go out on the warm-up track. Well, 3,000 meters starting out on that 200-meter line, the curve over on the other side of the track. You draw a card on what position you're going to be on the start line. And I drew number one. Number one is the person right on the inside. And there's all 24 other athletes out on that end. Well, you start off, they're all going to come in to get the pole position. And I'm going to get knocked off the track if I don't take care of myself. So I took off very fast and got myself out in front and went around the bend and thought of my promise. And I thought, oh, okay. So I slowed down a little and no one went past me. So I continued round in front of, you know, the, on the home straight and thinking about John and my promise and he's commentating and here I am out in front. And uh, he says, I mean, I, and I'm going, okay, I'll slow down a little bit again. Nobody goes past me. And at that point, it's like, you know, to hell with this. This is what I know. And uh, I went, I ran 15 seconds faster than I'd ever run for a 3,000 meters, broke the Commonwealth record, um, got New Zealand's first female track gold medalist. And to this day, I am still New Zealand's only track gold medalist. He was banned like a week before that yeah. from even running. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you just led from the front right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and 15 seconds, like that is just, that's criminal. It's unheard of almost, you know, to like you're normally talking seconds. Yeah. You know, one or two seconds, 15 seconds. What do you think it was? Was it just purely, was it just a combination of everything, the self-belief, the confidence that you were getting from all your running, um, just that, sort of I want to show them as well yeah I think I, an element of that I think it, a lot of it was I was very competitive but it was more against myself I, I mean I I really just wanted to see how fast I could run and that's why I like to be out in front as well because I like to dictate and and I I didn't want to finish third in a slow race you know, if I was going to finish third, I wanted to know I'd left everything out there and run as I wanted to see how fast I could run, not how someone else could dictate how fast I could run. So there was that. Um, but John's, so much of it was John's training program. I, I just think he had it nailed in terms of a peak performance. Um, I also think I'm gifted. I have to be. 
I mean, I, I have that to was the be. Under, I mean, understatement of the night. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm gifted. I was obviously given an amazing natural talent by those birth parents that I found. And and so, you know, none of my, I have six siblings from that birth family, full brothers and sisters. None of them did anything academically or um, sports-wise. Great folks whatsoever. But I found them when I was 32 years old and they find a, a sister that, that has done this, you know, and so, but they, they gave me a, a, an amazing gift, obviously, physically. Then it had to be trained, you know, then it had to be. But that's even, that's even more unique though, isn't it? Like, um, like if you're a spiritual person, you would think that that path was laid out. Yeah. That you were adopted at that such young age. Like if you'd stayed in that family um, that wasn't, you know, a sporting family in any sense. Um, and this gift, because so many of us have got a gift inside. It's just a lot of people are unfortunate that they don't get to discover what that yeah. is. You know, but we all have that. And I've said on the podcast many times before, you know, if Jimi Hendrix never picked up that guitar or John Lennon never picked up that pen, you know, and it was very unique that how your circumstance changed when you're at such a young age helped you find your gift. Yeah, nature and nurture is really quite something um, because one of the first things out of my birth mother's mouth was you would never have been who you are if you'd stayed with us. And that's very brave of her to say that you know I mean um but uh and it's true I mean all those kids were growing up and they knew who I was they'd followed me running watched me run and then they get told the, that I'm their sister the first time I'd seen you actually run um was obviously we did a podcast with Liz um oh yeah yeah Liz yeah and her amazing night, obviously in Scotland in the Commonwealth Games, mm -hmm. um, was maybe one of our most memorable nights in her career. Yeah, we jokingly say now that that, that I, I said I we're good friends on Facebook. We've been friends, and so I go, Liz. I said you have no idea. The next day on the streets of Edinburgh, I had so many Scottish people thanking me for allowing their gal to win a gold medal. Because <laughs> <laughs> you actually got you got silver that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, le I led all the way then too, um, and she passed me with a lap to go. Yeah, <laughs> that was amazing. Like, but it had to be her night. Yes, being in Scotland, yeah. so it was very important. Um, so an amazing, an absolutely colourful and amazing career. I think you've talked. I, I'm assuming that that gold medal was the highlight of your career. Yes, I think so because it capped a lot of things. Um, <clears throat> It was 13 years. I was 26 years old. It was 13 years from the surgery to the gold medal and all the ups and downs, the adversity, um, the coaches, the, you know, just the administrator, all the ups and downs, the perseverance that it took. So I think when people look at that shot, when I'm coming across the finish line, it's like, how do you feel about it? It's just absolute sheer relief that you finally got to where you really thought you would get and and that year as I said was so perfect with a world record gold medal and going unbeaten I could have retired on that year alone and said that's it I did it um but I had another um 10 years but you want you won more um races in America that 
in the eighties than any any male or female mm-hmm. saw a runner. Um, and we talked about you being one of the first. Pro- Sorry, we talked about you being one of the first professional runners. But you you really had a great career as well. You had the likes of was it Pepsi Max and people like that coming on board. Oh yeah, I I had. And you see- <laughs> yes, I mean. To be honest, you know, you and Michael, you and Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I have the jacket from the last tour that the Jackson Five did, was sponsored by Diet Pepsi. I have this. (laughs) I have the satin tour jacket, um, still. So yes, so I got a um a a a deal. Um, It was me and Bill Rogers got to be sponsored by Diet Pepsi for their series for a couple of years. I think Rod Dixon was in there for a period of time. and I had Nike, um, but you know my largest contract with Nike, and I was with Nike. I had eleven years on the roads, so I was with Nike for those eleven years. My largest contract was forty thousand um, dollars. There were, you know, American athletes that I was competing against that got far more than that, but I was not American, so I was happy with what I was getting. But where I was really, really smart when I negotiated those contracts. Um, was we set it up that, yes, it was a base of $40,000, but I got incentives for returning back to races and becoming another champion again. I got incentives for course records um, and and so and for the gold medal. Um, so I had it built in so that I would go back to races and I won Bloomsday seven times. I won the Cleveland 10K seven times. I won the Virginia 10 miler six times. It was all in our plan. So every January, John and I would sit down and we would have the plan of those road races and they were to break course records and they were to do repeat wins. That's how I built up my income. So that in the eighties and I have no, you know, hesitation to say I was earning, you know, $150,000 US in the 1980s as a runner you know and and so you know and it also started off from that one race yeah where you took that mm-hmm. um ten thousand dollar prize um packet yeah and when you see the likes of the two hour marathon now watch because it's very similar to that wasn't it you were obviously running in nike shoes and when you see the likes of elliot kachogi you know he's running in the new um like it's it's sort of almost history repeating itself a little bit isn't it yes i mean they're very innovative and 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 you know trying to um push the barriers all the time i mean there's you know a lot of conversations you've probably seen it there's a lot of people likening these shoes to the swimsuits that the swimmers started using a few years ago that eventually got banned because not all of them could get the suits and they were saying it was just too big of an advantage so they went back now you got the conversation saying well Unless the other shoe companies have the same technology, you know, isn't it? Is it whatever? I mean, I'm glad I'm out of that that stuff now. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention, sadly, all the drug taking. Oh my gosh! I mean, God, there isn't a month goes by that's not an African that's been banned, and and you just go mm. seriously. I I don't know. I have a hard time with our sport these days. You were honoured by the Queen. Mm-hmm. It's like. Once you had all the success, everybody then wanted to own you a little bit. <laughs> well, I think so I, I get that sense. Yeah, that's um, I I take pride, and I swear, and and someone would have to um, prove me wrong, but I think I'm the only person that can say that I'm in the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame, have an MBE from the Queen, 
and I'm in two United States Hall of Fame. So it has to be another New Zealander that can say the same thing. And I don't, Rod's got an MBE, Lorraine's got an MBE, but uh, they're not, neither of them are in the United States Hall of Fame. So, but they're both in the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame. Yeah. But you, you retired very early though, didn't you? I, what age were you, 36? Yes. You retired very early. Yes, I did. Um, I actually retired um, not for the physical side. I was still winning, um, still doing really well. Uh, it was mental. I just felt like I was taking it, um, becoming too complacent, wasn't as focused, was kind of quitting on the few workouts. Mm. Um, wasn't it was 20 years, like it was 22 know, 20 years of hard work, 22 years. And, and the mental side of, of, um, you know, being in hotel rooms and, and I found I just wasn't getting nervous anymore. And I always made the statement, the more nervous I was, the better I knew I was going to run. Um, and I wasn't getting nervous. I was just turning up. Um, so I won the last race I ever won, uh, ever ran. I didn't know it at the time. But it was just came to, I was just out one day and it was just like, you know what, I'm done. And John really didn't believe me. Um, he just thought, oh, you just need a break. Come home to New Zealand. And I said, no, John, I really mean it. And nobody believed it, to be honest. You know, the, my friends are running friends and guys I trained with. Oh, no, she just needs a mental break. She'll be back. No, I was done. And the only thing I did was um, in 1995, I became an American citizen and I also turned 40. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to run some Masters American Championships and say you got to be an American champion as a new citizen? So I was still running really well then. I mean, I just wasn't in training or racing so much, but I was still very fit. So I came out of retirement in 1996 and ran nine I mean, ran six um, U.S. Masters races and won three American championships in the 5K, 10K, and 12K, uh, and and then that was over. I was done. <laughs> that is I got my three. I got my three American championships as a new citizen, and that's all I wanted to do. So, what do you do with yourself, Meg? You still are involved in running, aren't you? I have been, but I, you know, that goes back to a little sadness about our sport. Um, when I retired, I still lived in Idaho and I founded a huge event in Idaho, which is taking place. It'll be 30 years next year. Very proud of that. Is that the Idaho 5K? Yes. Yeah, so, well, it was a, it, it began for 20 years. It was a women's only 5K. Um, we built it to be the largest women's only in the nation. But through those years, the sport changed so much for the better that all the road races were now got 60% female participation so the women didn't really care so much about a women's only anymore so we converted it uh, nine years ago to 5k 10k and half marathon and open to everybody but I'm really it's still you know 30 years later and I'm still involved in that respect and then through the rest of the time you know I would try to get speaking engagements or sponsorship to go into schools I did so much speaking in schools around the United States when I was competing you know, the school teacher in me, you know, I'd go into communities before a race and say, you know what, send me around to the schools. And I did that all the time. But what's so sad is these big races now, they built themselves on the backs of the elite athletes and all the attention that it brought to their races in the 80s. 
but they don't care about us anymore because they're now 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 participants. They don't need us anymore. And the very sad thing, as much as I mentioned, all that money in the 80s, can't earn it anymore. All those races that I raced, non-marathon, they either don't exist anymore, they don't have any prize money, they have very diminished prize money, or the ones that are the bigger ones have exactly the same first amount of prize money that they did in the 80s. No runner that's, can earn a living. That's the real struggle yeah. they have, like especially all these young aspiring you know olympians you know there's no money in athletics no. and that's a and when you look at the likes of football and you have like football is making two hundred fifty thousand yeah. pounds sterling yeah. a week yeah yeah and you know it's amazing to get your body into that shape where you can run a 5k at that pace you know it's phenomenal how good of an athlete yeah. these runners are and it's something that needs to change slowly. You yeah. know, there's a lot of grants and a lot of funding happening, but it's way too small and it's happening too slowly. It is. I, um, we're, yeah. we're losing a lot of special people because of that. I was on the board of directors for Running USA here in the States. Um, it's the organization that caps all the road races in the nation and all the race directors, you know, they you know, have the big conference and they talk about how to make their... And I and a couple of other people for during those six years were trying to tell them how they could bring the elites back to their races and showcase the elites. And our idea was that let's take the Boston Marathon. So the night before the Boston Marathon, on the streets of Boston, they run 5Ks and 10Ks almost like bicycle criteriums, right? So the streets can be lined with people and they're one mile circuits and people can stand on the sidelines and watch the world-class athletes race 5Ks and 10Ks and have big prize money, right? I mean, if you're going to shut down the streets of Boston the next day, you can certainly shut them down on a Friday night for one mile circuit. Oh, no. I, because they already had all the people lined up. Why should they spend money? on just a few athletes. And so all these people don't, these, these masses, they have no concept of how fast we can run. They don't have any concept oh, whatsoever. Such a great, it was a great story there. We can't end on a better suite. <laughs> <laughs> and that was absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm really glad that we used the new um, Squadcast as well today because I'm actually going to publish the video footage of this because it's great. Okay. I don't have to do any editing, which is amazing because you're such a great storyteller. <laughs> I could have sit, sat and listened to you all night. Um, but we really need to get that movie made. That's a movie that I, that I would watch. Yeah. I, when you come back to that group of people yeah. who were just new to the sport and they went off to become some of the world's best athletes in history. Yeah, it's... And where it all started from. I know, I know. It's an amazing story. I'll send you some links and, and you can do what whatever you want to do with them. Um, there's some, you know, there's some uh, uh, filming links from way back when they did the, the local newscasts of what was all going on as well. So I'll try and send you everything I have, however you want to use yeah, it. Cool. Yeah, I'll send it all to you. I'm, I'm going to publish this in about an hour. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stick it out there. All right. I think it's great. <laughs> 
And thanks very much. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Really so good to get to, get to know you. All right. Two accents. They're gonna right. they're gonna hear two different accents. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll confuse them if nothing else. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Robbie. All right, thank you. You take Anne. care. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye. Buzzing after this week's podcast, what an absolutely great story and Anne's a superb storyteller. We made a significant step in the audio quality this week by using a free trial of Squadcast. Still a little distortion could be heard, but this was down to learning settings, so hopefully we'll have this ironed out before next week's episode. Just like to thank everyone who has donated £10 or more to help support the future of the podcast. I didn't need to edit this in any way or form, which reduced the publishing time by three hours, which helps to make it sustainable going forward. So please, if you haven't already, it'd be awesome if you do enjoy the podcast to donate £10 on the crowdfunding link, which I've attached in the show notes. We've already raised just over £400 with a £500 target, but it would be great to see us reach £1,000 to sustain the podcast for the next two years. So many inspiring runners scheduled over the next few weeks. It's great to be back in business. So until next week, stay safe and keep on moving. <laughs>